0: We started this book last week. We're going to read the first three verses and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time here as we study His Word. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for the blessing that it is to have Your Word in our hands, to be able to read it, to understand it, and to study it. We ask now that You would bless this time with the presence of Your Spirit and that You would speak through Your Word as we look at this text with our own eyes. We ask, God, that we would learn from this important lessons and that You would teach us now in the power of Your Spirit through Your Word. We commit this time to You to that end for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now let me ask you, what is Jonah most known for? The prophet Jonah, what is he most known for? Being swallowed by a, a fish. Don't say whale, wasn't a whale, we don't know that it was a whale, right? Being swallowed by a fish. Unfortunately, that's what Jonah is most known for. But really, the fish wouldn't even come into the story if Jonah hadn't rebelled from the Lord. It's really his rebellion, which is the story behind the story, and it is his purposeful, diligent, disciplined, intentional, um, defection, disobedience, and rebellion against God. And if it weren't for that, the fish would never even come into the story. It's not that Jonah was down on the beach enjoying some R&R with his wife and kids and he was out swimming and a fish came up and swallowed him. It, the fish comes into the story because Jonah was in the midst of a rebellion and he was disobeying the Lord. That's what makes Jonah really the most unique prophet of all in the Old Testament. Charles Feinberg, Old Testament scholar, says Jonah, the prophet, is unique on two accounts. First, Jonah is the only prophet on record that we know of that was sent to a Gentile, non-Jewish city with a message. And second, Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament who disobeyed a clear command of God and turned the other way and went the other direction. So he is unique. In fact, Jonah, really, the book itself, is very scandalous. You and I are familiar with the book. We open it up and we read it and we say, oh yeah, the story. He runs, he gets swallowed, he gets spit up, he goes, he preaches, they repent, he's angry. Book ends, on to the next book. And we kind of read it with that attitude in mind. We are so familiar with it that we almost don't even see the scandal and the shock that would originally have been in the book. I want you to imagine for a second that you are a Jew who lived about the time of Jonah, just shortly afterwards. And you pick up Jonah's account and you start to read through the book of Jonah. And you start to read through it, you see that God gave a clear command to Jonah and he turned around and he, in rebellion, went the other way. There are things in the book of Jonah that if you were a Jew reading it in Jonah's day would utterly scandalize you, utterly shock you. It is a scandalous story. That a prophet of God, a spokesman of God, a man of God who is called and commissioned to a task would hear from God a clear command and intentionally go the other way and disobey a clear command from God. That is a scandal. Any Jew reading that would say, you've got to be kidding me. You did what? That is unheard of. For a prophet of God to do something like that? Unheard of. We're three verses into the book of Jonah. Verse 1, 2, and 3. and We get right into the middle of the action. And... With a brevity of words, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, Jonah doesn't fill in all the details for us, but he tells us enough to be clear about what's going on in these first three verses. And there's stuff here that would shock the ears of those who would hear this in Jonah's day. And you're going to see what that is today. The, the passage begins, in these three verses, we're going to see this, sort of this commissioning and this rebellion played out in two scenes. First, in verses 1 and 2, there's a revelation from God. Verses 1 and 2, we see the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, and then we see what that word of the Lord said. Then in verse 3, we see Jonah's response to that revelation. So verses 1 and 2, the revelation of God. Verse 3, Jonah's response to the revelation. Look at it again, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... You and I tend to read the words like that and we think, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever, get on to the good part of the meat. The word of the Lord came to you, we understand that, and we pass on to the rest of it. Slow down for just a second and stop and ask yourself, what is being said there just with that phrase? That is a common way that prophets would introduce their books or their prophetic utterances in the Old Testament. You read through the Old Testament, you'll find over a hundred times that phrase is used. The word of the Lord came to. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It was used in two ways. It was used of any time that a prophet would introduce sort of his prophetic discourse. You see it in Joel chapter 1 where it says the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Bethel. And then you have three chapters of Joel's prophetic discourse, what it is that God spoke to him. You see it in Haggai. The Word of the Lord came to Haggai. You read through the Old Testament prophets, minor prophets, you see that whenever they would introduce their prophetic discourse, they would introduce it with that phrase. The Word of the Lord came to me saying. And it was used of a second thing, and that is not just to introduce a prophetic discourse, but also to instruct a prophet. So you see prophets receiving instruction like Elijah in 2 Kings, where it says the Word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go to the brook Cherith. And Elijah went. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah again and said, go to the house, to the widow of the house of, the house of a widow in Zarephath, and there I will feed you. So, it was used to introduce prophetic utterances, and it was used to introduce prophetic instruction, where a prophet was told to go do this and to go do that. Now, when you read the word of the Lord came to, it communicates to us, and it did to the Jews, two things. Listen. The first is this. That the message that the prophet bore was not his own. He didn't create this message. He didn't come up with this message. He didn't fabricate it out of whole cloth. This was not something he was thinking. This was not something that was on his heart. This is something that came to him by revelation from God. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah saying... So this is the fourth date of Revelation. And what Jonah is saying is, the message that I received and the message that I was to bear was not my own. When you read that in the Old Testament, that is what a prophet is claiming. When the Word of the Lord comes to the prophet... The prophet is saying, the message that I am delivering is not of my own making. This comes from the God of heaven. Now, that's significant. Why? Because of the second thing that it communicated, and that is that anytime time the word of the Lord came saying, it bore divine authority. This was the God of heaven speaking. I understand that today it's popular for us to use vernacular, and Christians do this all the time. We say, the Lord spoke to me and said. We do that. You hear it all the time. Listen for it. The Lord spoke to me, and the Lord spoke to me and said, "I should I did, to send this person an encouragement card." The Lord spoke to me and said, "You just need to go here." The Lord spoke to me and just told me this on my heart. God was speaking to me, and He did this. Or I feel the Lord speaking to me, saying, "No, you don't. Are you really trying to make the claim as Jonah was, that the word of the Lord has come to you, and that you are a specific messenger of God, and that you've been commissioned by the God of Heaven, and that the message that you bear is yours by divine authority?" He said, "Jim, I would." Never make that claim. I understand you would never make that claim. But that's what you're saying. The Lord spoke to me and told me to go do such and such, or to do something, or to say this. You're making a claim of divine inspiration. There's no way of getting around it. When the Lord opens His mouth and speaks, it's authoritative, and it's binding, and it's His message. And He doesn't speak to us and tell us things like, go do such and such, and go do so and so. When we say that, I understand what we mean. Here's what we mean. I felt burdened in my heart to do something. I felt very strongly that I should do this. Or we simply mean a thought popped into my head and I assumed that this was the Lord saying this to me. Just because a thought pops into your head doesn't mean it's divine revelation. Just because a thought pops into your head doesn't mean God is speaking to you. The Word of the Lord came to the prophets. The Word of the Lord came to the apostles. The Word of the Lord came to men who wrote down the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord does not come to you and I like that. See, Jonah did not get a nudge. Jonah did not get an impression. Jonah did not have a feeling deep in his heart that he should go to Nineveh. That's not what Jonah's communicating. When Jonah says, the Word of the Lord came to me, Jonah is saying, the God of heaven has spoken to me. Now, maybe it was through a vision. Maybe it was through a dream. Perhaps it was an audible voice. Perhaps not. But it was something where unmistakably the prophet knew that God was speaking to him. And throughout the Old Testament, the minor prophets and anybody who was a spokesman for God, you never read of them saying, I just felt burdened that the Lord, I think, was trying to say to me such and such. They never say that. They say, without a doubt, this is what the Lord has said. He has revealed this to me. And I'm merely a spokesman. I'm merely a messenger. I'm merely a voice piece. I'm merely the mouth through which the God of heaven is speaking. But they never said, I think I get the impression the Lord is trying to tell me something. Listen, when God speaks, it's very clear. And you will know. God has never said anything to me Outside of this book. Never. Never once have I heard an audible voice that told me to do anything. Never once have I heard a still small voice that told me to do anything. Never once have I ever been told anything by God outside of this book. Anything that God has ever had to say to me, He has said right here in this book. Everything God has ever needed to say to me, He has spoken right here in this book. And I've never received a message outside of this book. You want to hear the voice of God? Read Holy Scripture. The voice of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, This was a message from God. He does not speak to us through nudges and still small voices and impressions and pieces apart from Scripture. He speaks to us through His Word, and in His Word, once for all delivered to the saints, He has given to us everything we need for life and Godliness. Everything. Through these precious promises that He has granted to us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now let's look at the content of the word of the Lord. What does it say in verse 2? Here's his directions. Three verbs. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it for their wickedness. He was to arise, go, and to cry. Arise and go to the city of Nineveh. What do you know about the city of Nineveh? I asked my children that the other night, and one of them said, that's the city where they hit each other with fishes. And you know where that comes from? The VeggieTales movie, and I said, "That's it. We're doing away with all tales out of our house. No more corrupting of the influences." Nineveh was a far more wicked city than just hitting each other with fishes. Nineveh actually was an ancient city, a very old city. It goes all the way back. It's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, as being founded by Nimrod right after the flood. He founded basically the kingdom of Assyria, Nineveh, or sorry, not Assyria, but Babylon, and Nineveh was one of its cities. Later on, Assyria sort of rose to prominence. And over the course of time, Nineveh became the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria. And so you always had these two competing kingdoms, Babylon and Assyria. And Assyria rose to world dominance. Assyria was founded by Nimrod. It was named... um, Sorry, Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. It was named Nineveh. And our transliteration is Nineveh. Nineveh was a name of the goddess Ishtar. So the city was founded in idolatry. It was named after an idol, and it grew to be, most likely, the largest city on the face of the earth. It was located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River, right across the river from uh, Karzabad, Iraq. In fact, part of the, the ruins of Nineveh lie under the modern-day city of Mosul in northern Iraq. And it was a massive city and a massive complex. The city of Nineveh itself had a wall around it, and historians say that that wall was 100 feet tall, and it was sprinkled with these battle towers periodically around the wall, which rose up to 200 feet. And I think it's Herodotus, the historian, who said that three horse-drawn chariots could ride abreast across the, around the top of that wall. That's how thick it was, and that's how big it was. The circumference of the city was upwards of 12 miles. So this was a wall 100 feet tall that went 12 miles around the city of Nineveh. Now, ancient writers used Nineveh, the word Nineveh, to refer to really two different things. First, the word Nineveh was used to refer to the city proper. That is the area of the district within the city walls. But the word Nineveh was also used by ancient writers to not only refer to Nineveh, the city, but also all of the outlying districts which were connected to the city of Nineveh, which lied outside of the walls of the city. And there were at that time, at Jonah's time, three large metropolises outside of the city of Nineveh. They were all connected. Now, we use, the, we use that kind of terminology today. I'm on a trip. Somebody asks me, where are you from? I say Sandpoint. Is that accurate? Well, yes and no. Yes, I'm from Sandpoint. That's the area. But I actually live in Kootenai. Well, no, I technically don't. I actually live outside the city of Kootenai in the county. But Sandpoint is a word we use to refer to Dover, Ponderé, Kootenai. This whole populated area which surrounds Sandpoint proper, within the city limits of Sandpoint, it's proper to call that city Sandpoint, but also all this populated area around it, which is other cities we would refer to properly as Sandpoint. They did the same thing with Nineveh. And most scholars believe that that's how Jonah uses the term Nineveh in this city. He calls it the great city, Nineveh. And the idea is not only that this was a large city, an enormous city, but it was an important city because it was the capital of the Gentile world. Assyria was the world's lone superpower of the time. And anything that happened within the Gentile world, any politics that went on, went on within the city of Nineveh, because they controlled all of that. So it's a great city in that it's very large. You see later on, 120,000 children in the city of Nineveh. Most people estimate that that area, not just the city itself, but all of the outlying districts around the city of Nineveh, probably upwards of 600,000 people in that area. The circumference of that would have been almost 90 miles around. So you're talking about a massive, massive group of people. So when we read Nineveh in the book of Jonah, don't just think city within the walls. You're talking about city within the walls, but all of this population, which was properly called Nineveh, outside the city walls as well. So that's the city of Nineveh. And Jonah was to go to Nineveh, and he was to preach against it. Now the content of Jonah's message is not given. But you notice the attitude of his message, and what is it? Against them you to preach against them. Jonah was to go into the city of Nineveh and to be a light and to shine the light of God's Word on their conscience and on their wickedness because their wickedness had rose up and come up even to heaven. I'll explain that in just a second. But Jonah was to go into the city and preach against the city. He was to cry out against the city cry out against their adultery and their fornication and their thieving and their lying and their sorceries and their harlotries and their abominations and their homosexuality and their idolatry and all of the wickedness and the murder and the violence that went on within that city. He was to cry out against all of that. And he was to go into the city and to preach to them a message of repentance. Jonah was to go into the city and cry out to them and tell them, unless you turn from your sin, God is going to judge you. Jonah was not told to go to Nineveh and say, look, you need to tell these people that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. That wasn't his message. And his message was not the four spiritual laws. His message was, you have sinned against the God of heaven and you have violated His law and unless you turn from your sin, there is judgment that is going to come. And friends, that's how every gospel presentation should begin. You have sinned against the God of heaven, and unless you turn from your sin, you will face divine judgment, and it will be swift, and it will be severe, and it will be just. He was to cry out against the city for their sin, for their wickedness had come up before God. What does that mean? Does it mean that a messenger ran and told the Lord, Hey, are you just seeing what's going on in Nineveh? Aren't you seeing how wicked they are? It's actually a figure, an idiom, a figure of speech, which has the idea of their sins piling up even to the heavens. Their sins have been so persistent, so insistent, so perpetual, so intentional, so abominable that they have piled up even into my presence is the idea. It's a poetic way of saying their sins are heaped up and now it's time to deal with it. Their wickedness has come up from before me. And What kind of wickedness? The Bible actually describes the wickedness of the city of Nineveh In another book that is written only to the city of Nineveh in the kingdom of Assyria. Did you know that there's another book of the Bible, another minor prophet who wrote, and his entire book was written to the city of Nineveh? Did you know that? Do you know who it is? Anybody? Nahum. Not Obadiah. Obadiah was Esau. Good guess though. Because that is a book that was written to a Gentile nation. But Nahum is the other minor prophet. Three chapters where Nahum describes the judgment of God that was coming and the sin of the city of Nineveh. Now, Nahum writes 120 to 150 years after Jonah. So Jonah was first, and later on, about 100 years later, that revival that it takes place in chapter 3 had waned, and the people had gone back to their wicked ways, and then God sends Nahum and says, here comes the destruction, and here is what it's for. And Nineveh was finally destroyed in 622 B.C., right after Nahum gives his prophecy. But in the book of Nahum, and I would commend it for your reading. Take it home and read through that a couple times in the next few weeks as we're going through Jonah. You go home and you read through the book of Nahum and you'll see Nahum describe the sins of Nineveh. Their violence and their might and their power and their brutality. Nahum says the corpses are stacked up outside the city. The corpses stink. The corpses are so numerous that they are falling over their dead bodies. And what Nahum is describing is the, the utter wickedness and the violence and the bloodthirstiness of Assyria. Assyria was the most, and this is true even till today. Assyria was is the most wicked, the most violent, the most bloodthirsty nation that has ever, in the history of mankind, gained world domination. They put the Babylonians to shame. They put the Medes and the Persians to shame. They put the Romans to shame. They were so bloodthirsty that the Assyrians actually boasted of their own atrocities. Let me read to you some of the words of some of the rulers of the nation of Assyria. Asher Nasirpal II, pardon me if I'm not pronouncing the Assyrian just right, but you get the idea. Asher Nasirpal II, who reigned from 883 to 859, he boasted this, quote: I stormed the mountain peaks and took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut off and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Then he says of one leader that he had conquered, quote, I flayed his skin and I spread it upon the wall of the city. That was their practice. They would go in and they would kill the warriors and the rulers and the chief people in the city, and they would flay them alive. And they described this in the most graphic and gory detail. They flayed them alive and would hang their skins all over the city walls. Shalmaneser II, who reigned from 859 to 824, he boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns. He said, quote, A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burned with fire, end quote. Saddam, sorry, I mean Sennacherib. I get these Assyrian, Iraqi, bloodthirsty dictators confused, so I apologize for that. Sennacherib wrote of his enemies, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts like a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and their entrails run down upon the earth. Their hands I cut off. Ashurbanipal described his treatment of a captured leader in these words, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel. And then Ashurbanipal also boasted that his officials had hung Egyptian corpses on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the cities with them. That's the Assyrian people. That's the Assyrian people before Jonah got there. That is the Assyrian people after the repentance of chapter 3, before Nahum prophesied, and before their destruction in 622. The most violent, bloodthirsty, insatiably bloodthirsty people to ever gain world domination. That is the group that God said to Jonah, I want you to go there, because their wickedness has mounted up before me. And cry against that city. Now, do you think Jonah was scared? Do you think he ran because he's scared? He didn't run because he's scared. Jonah's not afraid to die. You find that out in chapter 1. Throw me overboard. He's not afraid to die. He knew that He knew what God was going to do as a result of his preaching. We find this out in chapter 4. The only place in the whole book where we get the motive for his running. It's not because he was scared. It's not because he was daunted by the number of people. It's not that he was afraid of their bloodthirstiness or their violence or thought he was going to die. He was afraid that God would be gracious. That's why he runs. find that out in chapter 4. But let's look now at Jonah's response. We've looked at the revelation. Go and cry against the city because their wickedness is mounted up before me. Now look at Jonah's response. Verse 3. But Jonah rose up. So far, so good. God gave him three things, right? Rise up, go to Nineveh, and preach against them. Jonah rises up. So far, so good. Then what does he do? He flees from the presence of the Lord for Tarshish. Now, Nineveh was about 600 miles due east of Jerusalem, or Gath Heber, where, where, uh, where Jonah was from. 600 miles east and a little bit to the north, over on the Tigris River. He flees to Tarshish, which was west. That's why he goes to Joppa. Now, when Jonah got the instruction from the Lord, I read these words and I ask myself, what did Jonah do when he heard the word of the Lord come to him saying this? Did Jonah say to himself, Lord, let me pray about that? That's the typical evangelical out, right? We see something in Scripture we don't like that confronts us wrong. We say, well, I just have to get... Let me pray about that. I've had people sit down with me in an open Bible and read what the Word of God says, and they'll say, "Uh, Okay, I can see that. Let me pray about that and see what I should do. What? You need to pray about it? Are you hoping that God's going to change his mind? He doesn't change his mind. Or did Jonah have an argument with the Lord like Moses did at the burning bush? Lord, are you sure this is the best idea? I mean, if you want a prophet, I'm not the guy. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a good preacher. I'm, busy. I'm booked for weeks out. And you got Hosea and you got Amos that you could send. Those guys are good prophets as well. They're just a little farther south. If they want to stay at my house for a night on their way up to Nineveh, I would be happy to do that. Or did Jonah, just, did Jonah just with a knee-jerk response, up and bolt and run like a chicken with his head cut off? I think from what we read in verse 3, that Jonah planned and plotted And what he did was deliberate and intentional and purposeful. And I'll show you why. It says that he went to Tarshish. This is where he was headed before he left Gathepher. He was on his way to Tarshish. Now, nobody knows exactly where Tarshish is at. This is kind of interesting. We have no place in the whole Mediterranean where we can pin down and say, this is where we know Tarshish was, because we found documents or records or city remains or anything like that. Most scholars believe that Tarshish... Is what is today Tartessus. Not Tartar Sauce, that's a different c- a city. Tartessus. Tartessus is a, and I know I'm not pronouncing this right either, a city on the western coast of Spain. It was a Phoenician colony founded about 1000 BC by the Phoenicians, who also at the same time ran the port at Joppa, where Jonah is on his way to. So the Phoenicians ran Joppa, and the Phoenicians had these vessels that they would trade wares all over the Mediterranean. Joppa was one of their stops. And as far west as you could go without crossing the Atlantic Ocean and hitting North America was Tarshish on the western coast of Spain. Nineveh was 600 miles east. Tarshish was 3,000 miles west. Jonah went as far away from his land as he could possibly get. He was running and he wanted to get as far away as he possibly could. But as far away from what? The text says he was on his way to Tarshish to flee from what? The presence of the Lord. And you see it again at the end of verse 3. So he went down with them to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Twice he makes mention of this. Fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now I ask myself, what's going on and what is the presence of the Lord? And what does Jonah mean by this? I used to think in my mind that Jonah mistakenly believed, or at least was thinking in his heart, that he could somehow find a place where God wasn't. But Jonah's no fool. He knows that God is omnipresent. He knows that God is everywhere. He's familiar with the Old Testament Psalms, as evidence from chapter 2, where he quotes at least 10 different Psalms in his prayer of chapter 2. He's familiar with the Psalms of the Old Testament, so certainly he was familiar with David's words, where David said, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and go to the remotest parts of the earth, you're there. Wherever I go, your hand is upon me. Your hand is with me. You go with me wherever I go. Jonah knew that. Jonah is not trying to get away from God's presence as if he's looking for some nook or cranny of the globe where he can settle down and be out of God's sight. There's something much more profound going on with that phrase, fleeing from the presence of the Lord. What is it? Two things, and they're both connected. If you were a Jew and you were living in Jonah's day and you, asked, you were walking along the streets of Jerusalem and you said to a Jew, where does God dwell, what would they say? Land of Israel. To a Jew, that was the manifest presence of God. In the temple, at Jerusalem, in His promised land, that's where God had manifested Himself. That's where God had made Himself known. That's where God had planned that He would dwell in blessing among His people. And every Jew, when he thought of the presence of God, thought of the special land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was where the presence of God was as far as a Jew was concerned. And that's how they used that phrase back then. Fleeing from the presence of God, I think it's Genesis chapter 4, it says that a certain individual went out of the land, out to the land of Nod, and fled from the presence of God. What he meant was not that he was trying to go somewhere that God wasn't. What he meant by that was he was getting away from the place where God had manifested his presence. He was leaving that. Jonah was leaving his land. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promised land. But something more than that. The presence of God was a prophetic idiom, a prophetic figure of speech that spoke of the prophetic office. Let me give you a couple of examples. Second Kings chapter 17, Elijah says, He was one of the settlers of Gilead, and he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. First Kings 18, verse 15, again, Elijah the prophet says, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, that was a prophet's way of saying, I am a spokesman of God and I stand in the very presence of God before the face of God and I bear to you a message of God. For a prophet to say he stood in God's presence was for him to refer to his calling as a spokesman of God to stand in God's presence and to proclaim God's word to God's people. Uh, Jeremiah uses the same word the same way. God says, you stand in My presence and I will make you My spokesman. It was a prophetic idiom. They spoke of the prophetic office. So when it says that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, it's not speaking of trying to get somewhere where God wasn't. Listen, Jonah was quitting. He was resigning his prophetic call. He is resigning his prophetic office. He is saying to the Lord, look, here's my... Country club card to the prophet's only golf course. I'm done. I've been your spokesman up to this point. I've proclaimed your word. I've taught your people. You have asked me to do this. No more. I quit. I am leaving his presence. And that is what Jonah did. It is a purposeful, intentional, planned decision that Jonah made. He knew before he left Gath-hepher that he was running to Tarshish. As far away from the presence of the Lord as he could go. So when it says that Jonah was fleeing the presence of the Lord, here is what Jonah was doing. He was quitting his prophetic office. He was saying, Lord, I'm done with that. I'm no longer your spokesman. You can ask of me a lot of things, but going to Nineveh is not one of them. You find somebody else to send because it's not going to be me. And he gathered up his life savings or however much he knew that would require him to take him all the way to Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa with the intention of going, leaving his call, leaving his prophetic office, Leaving his land and leaving his people. And he was never coming back. You know, I read the book of Jonah for the first few years of my Christian life. I always got the impression that this was a knee jerk reaction that Jonah was just, he heard the word of the Lord and he said, <clears throat> and he just started running. Just out the door, first direction, let's just head west. I mean, no Nineveh is east, let's go west. And he stumbled into Joppa and found a ship and threw the coins out of his pocket and ran down into the hole of the ship and he was just terrified trying to get out of the presence of God someplace where God couldn't see him in a dark, deep corner recess of the ship. That it was a knee-jerk panic reaction. It wasn't that at all. I think Jonah thought it through. I think he thought it through and it was intentional. Jonah could have disobeyed and stayed in Gath Ephra. He just could have said no. Right? He didn't have to run. To be disobedient? Why was he running? He was running because he was saying, that's it. I'm done with my call. I'm done with these people. I'm done with the land. It was not enough just to disobey. Jonah had to say, I'm leaving everything that is my Jewishness and my calling and my office in life and I'm going the other direction. I'm done with prophetic ministry. Get on board a ship. I want you to notice something in these first three verses. There's something mentioned in verse three that is actually a theme that is going to carry us through all of the way uh, through the rest of chapter one and chapter two, and it is this theme of going down. You say that you see that he went down to the city of Joppa. Now, Joppa was the only seaport on the land of, on, the, on the western coast of Palestine. It was the only natural harbor that Palestine had at the time. It was under the control of the Phoenicians. And Jonah went down to the seaport of Joppa. It wasn't he stumbled onto Joppa because it happened to be a city he was staying in. And there he found a ship. No, no. He intended to leave Israel. That's why he went to Joppa. He went to the seaport intentionally. Now Joppa, and here's just an interesting New Testament note for you. Joppa, interestingly enough, is the city in which Peter was staying when he was up on the rooftop and God sent Peter on his prophetic or proclamation ministry to a Gentile, Cornelius. Remember Peter's son of or... Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Peter's father was named Jonah. Peter, when he was sent on his ministry to a Gentile city, or to a Gentile convert, was staying in Joppa when the Lord appeared to him. Ironically enough, and I don't know that if there's anything we can make of this, it's just an interesting thing to note, Joppa is the very city that Jonah fled to when he was leaving his prophetic office and wanting to get away from his call to go to a Gentile. So he went down to the city of Joppa. And there's four things that verse 3 says he did. He went to the city of Joppa. He Number two, found a ship. Number three, he paid the fare. And number four, he went down into, with them to the ship to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now you'll notice twice in verse three it says he went down. You see that? He went down to Joppa, then he went down into the ship. Look down at verse five. The end of verse five says, Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and he laid down. You need to flip over to chapter two and I want you to follow this train of downwardness. Chapter 2, verse 2. The end of the verse says, I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Verse 3, For you have cast me into the deep. Chapter 2, verse 5. Waters encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. Do you see Jonah's theme? Over and over he's saying, I went down. When did the downward path start? When he rebelled. Went down to Joppa. Went down into the ship went down in the ship, he laid down, and then from the ship he went down into the sea, then he went down into the belly of the fish, and then from the fish, Jonah says, I went down even to the depths of Sheol, to the root of the mountains. It's a downward spiral. Now that ends when Jonah repents and the fish vomits him up. That's the first upward thing you see in the whole book is when the fish spits him up on dry land. Before that, all of the rebellion is downward. This is exactly what sin is. Sin is a downward descent. It is always going down. I'm going through the the book of Proverbs with my family in the evenings, and I'm amazed at how often the Proverbs speak of going down the path of wickedness. It's never up that we go when we sin. It's always down. It always takes us down. Proverbs says you go down to the house of an adulterer or an adulteress. You go down to the house of the wicked. The path of the unrighteous takes you down the steps of death, down to the depths of hell, down to death itself. Always downward, and that's what sin does. Sin takes us downward, never upward. Now, this is how Jonah describes it after the fact when he writes the book. But listen, Jonah would never have described his rebellion as going downward when he was in the midst of rebellion. I'm sure that Jonah thought that all of his sin and his rebellion was going to improve his lot in life. This was exactly what he needed for things to get better. And that is exactly what sin, how sin presents itself to us. It wouldn't be tempting if we saw the end result of our sin on the front end of it. It wouldn't tempt us. It wouldn't tempt us if we looked at a path that we were going on that was sinful and we saw the end of it and we saw that it was going down. The temptation of sin and the allurement of sin is always that if I do this, or if I get this, or if I compromise here, I can improve my lot. This will make me happier. It will give me something. The alcoholic drinks because he loves his sin and he thinks he's better off drunk than he is sober. The man leaves his wife and his children and goes after the pretty young blonde who's younger at work because he thinks that that's going to improve his lot. And what he does not know is that that path leads him downward. What he doesn't see on the front end of it is that this is a path down to the depths and the steps of hell itself. You and I have been warned. It's exactly what sin does. And not only do we not, are we not able to see the direction, but sin is. The temptation to sin and the temptation to rebel always looks deceivingly um, alluring, deceivingly easy. It always looks easier for us to sin. I'm sure that when Jonah got down to the city of Joppa, he he could have said, look at that, a ship. A ship heading to Tarshish, right where I was going to go. Look at the providence of God, the hand of God is upon me. All my circumstances show that this is the way that God leads me, and I'm being guided by my circumstance, and here's the ship that I was looking for. And funny how I got this, just enough money to pay the fare in my pocket. Of course, I've gathered up my life savings before I ever left for Joppa, but I've got all this money that I can pay the fare, and he pays the fare. And I doubt if Jonah walked up out upon the dock to get on board the ship and saw the storm clouds in the west coming in, and the typhoon and all the wind and the waves, and a a big fish sitting there next to the, the boat looking up at him, just with these hungry eyes, I can picture Jonah walking down out onto the dock and looking to the west. Fair sky at night, sailor's delight. This is going to be a magnificent journey. And when I get to Tarshish, everything is going to be better. No prophetic ministry. No requirement to go preach to anybody. God is going to leave me alone. I'm leaving my people. I'm leaving my calling. I'm leaving all of this behind. It's going to be smooth sailing. My future still so bright I need to wear shades. It's probably what he thought thinking to himself. But he gets on board the ship And it's the path down. Always, always down. Now listen, Jonah made two crucial errors. And these will serve as warnings for us. Here's the first one. Jonah had a completely wrong view of the Word of God. The Word of God came to Jonah saying, and Jonah said, no, I don't think so. I don't like that. It's not what I had in mind. It's going to cost me too much. It's not what I wanted to see happen. So Jonah had an attitude toward the Word of God that he could take it or he could leave it. Where Jonah should have just said, okay, yes Lord, I'll do it. But Jonah had a wrong view of the Word of God. He viewed God's Word as optional. I will assess it or I will look at it or I will determine whether or not I should obey it based upon my circumstances, based upon my feelings at the time, based upon whatever is going on. It was optional to Jonah. So Jonah looked at the Word of God and rather than seeing it as divinely authoritative, Jonah just said, no, I'll evaluate that. I'll take that under consideration. Listen, I've had people sit down with a Bible open in front of us and we're all both looking at the same passage and it's clearly spelled out there what they're to do. And you know what they'll say to me? Let me to go pray about that. And then they go pray about that. And then they get done praying about it and they come back and say, well, I just don't feel. Or I feel a peace about it. And I think the Lord is telling me to." A completely wrong view of the Word of God. Jonah's second mistake, he had a wrong view of the will of God. Jonah honestly believed that his will and his way was better than God's. That's what he honestly believed. Now let me tell you something. When the Word of God comes to you in the pages of Scripture, as we've talked about, and you see the Word of God in front of you, you're always confronted with a choice. Do I obey or do I disobey? You have to make the decision at the front end of it. I will obey. No matter what it costs me, no matter what might result, no matter what might happen, no matter what God might do, whether I like it or not, I'm going to obey this. Because God's Word is true, His way is perfect, and His will is better than mine. And if you don't make that decision up front, whatever the Word says, I will obey it. If that's not your decision, if that's not your conviction, then every time a decision comes, you're going to vacillate between one and the other and have to wrestle through this obedience thing. Am I really willing to obey all over again? And then you begin to compromise your principles. And those principles are compromised, not at decision time, but before the decision ever comes, when you should have made the decision, I will obey no matter what, because God's Word is better. Now, I asked you this morning, what is your attitude toward the Word of God? And second, what is your attitude toward the will of God? Do you think that the Word of God is something for you to evaluate based upon your circumstances and you decide whether to obey or not? And do you think that the will of God is something for you to evaluate based upon your circumstance and you'll decide if it's best or not? If you haven't made that decision, then I fear that there are people here today who are Jonah's sitting in our midst. And it's just a matter of time before you start to go down. And you will go down and it will look deceptively easy, deceptively pleasant, and deceptively good. But it's the path to the path of hell. And I pray that God will preserve all of us from that, by giving us a love for His Word and a right view of not only God's Word, but also God's will. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your grace to us and the warnings that are here in Scripture. There is an example for us here to learn from and to not follow, and we also pray, Lord, that You would help us to learn the positive lessons of this text. Thank You, Father, for giving us Your grace and Your Spirit for enabling us to obey. And I pray, God, that we may view your word the way it is to be viewed and the way you have given it to us, and your will is that which is pleasing and perfect and the very best thing for us. And we ask, God, that we would have the grace from you and by your Spirit to obey you in all things, whether it is pleasing to us in our sight or not. And may you be glorified through that decision. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.